Welcome to Live at America's Town Hall, live constitutional conversations held here at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia and across America. I'm Tanea Tauber, Director of Town Hall Programs. Today we kick off our special series, 1A USA, Conversations on the First Amendment's Past, Present, and Future. This five-part series will dive into the landmark cases and events that have shaped the First Amendment and explore the technological, political, and legal developments that continue to shape it today. These conversations were held live last year at the National Conference on the First Amendment, hosted by Duquesne University in partnership with the National Constitution Center. Our first episode starts off with a panel discussing how private actors like social media companies and media outlets that are not covered by the First Amendment nonetheless make important decisions about how to regulate speech. Moderator and NCC President Jeffrey Rosen sits down with radio host Hugh Hewitt, Fox News contributor Juan Williams, and professor and former ACLU president Nadine Strawson. Later you'll hear from Solicitor General Noel Francisco and Third Circuit Judge Thomas Hardiman in conversation with Duquesne University President Ken Gormley. And Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg will share a message about what the First Amendment means to her. Here's Jeff to get the first panel started. Thank you so much. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. I am Jeff Rosen, the head of the National Constitution Center, and the Constitution Center is so thrilled to be a co-sponsor of this important conference with uh, Ken Gormley and Duquesne. Congrats to Ken for putting this great group together, and thank you to my friends and colleagues for joining. The Constitution Center is launching this fall an exciting First Amendment initiative, and I want to tell you about it and then ask my colleagues uh, whether they think it is adequate to solve the crisis of free speech that faces this country. Uh, this is an initiative that the College Board will distribute to all two to three million AP students. So in other words, every AP student, uh, when they graduate, will take two weeks on the First Amendment that the Constitution Center is putting together. And this is the core wisdom that we're trying to teach all of those two to three million amazing AP kids. The basic idea is that the First Amendment forbids the government from restricting speech unless it's intended to and likely to incite imminent violence. It was recognized by the Supreme Court in Brandenburg, and we tell the historical study about how it rose from the disputes over the Alien and Sedition Act in 1798, when President Adams tried to throw his critics in jail, and Madison and Jefferson responded in the Virginia and Kentucky Resolution that freedom of completely criticizing public characters is the essence of democratic deliberation. And then it was further refined in the debates over the Espionage Act of 1917 when President Woodrow Wilson threw his critics in jail and Eugene V. Debs ran for president at, from a jail cell in 1920 because he made a mild speech criticizing World War I. And because of the great dissenting opinions of Justices Holmes and Brandeis, the Supreme Court came to recognize the principle that freedom for the thought we hate, as Justice Holmes called it, and complete freedom of deliberation so that men can develop their faculties of reason, as Brandeis put it, is essential to functioning democratic self-government. So that's the basic idea, and it's very exciting and very important that all students and all of us citizens understand that this principle sets America apart from the rest of the world and makes us more protective of free speech than any other country. And we're going to teach it to those AP kids and then take it out to kids across the country and to adults as well. But we have here an amazing panel of friends, 
of different uh, uh, backgrounds and philosophical perspectives. And yet all three of my colleagues have written eloquently that today the greatest threats to free speech seem to come not necessarily from the government, but from private actors. And they've talked in different ways and they've been on the front lines of describing how in our anxious times, efforts to ban or suppress speech from private actors influence more who can speak and who can be heard than any threat by any government official, at least in the United States. So I want to begin by that, by asking each of them, from whom do you think the greatest threat to free speech comes? And then we'll debate what, if anything, we can do about it. I'm going to begin with Juan Williams, because you famously had uh, uh, a personal experience where you um, uh, said something that NPR didn't like and you were fired for it. So tell us what happened and then tell us why you have come to conclude that the greatest threat to free speech today comes not from the government but from private corporations. Well, thank you, Jeff. So the, this episode is pretty well known. I've written a book about it uh, and the book was titled Muzzled because effectively I felt muzzled as a public voice uh, after I appeared on Bill O'Reilly's show, the, the Factor on Fox News and said that when I am getting on an airplane in the aftermath of 9-11 and I see people dressed in Muslim garb, it makes me nervous. Um, my employer at NPR, where I was serving as the senior political correspondent, said that was a bigoted statement and they did not feel comfortable with me working there. And it got into even more name calling and finger pointing uh, intended to damage my reputation as a journalist. Um, but they fired me. Uh, and I remember just being so devastated by this. Uh, you know, it was one of those moments in your life. I remember coming out of a hotel room and looking down. In those days, you had the USA Today, the New York Times, and the like at the front of your hotel room. And I had had trouble sleeping after being fired. And I wake up and I look out, and there, there are three newspapers, and my face is on the cover of all three. I thought, boy, I'm in trouble now. This is serious business. Um, and again, this was not, to pick up on your point, Jeff, this was not the act of the government. Uh, this was an act of a private employer just deciding that an employee had acted in a way that they perceived as not being in the best interest of their brand. Uh, and I think similarly, similar to this would be, uh, for example, the advertisers that would, for example, decide that their brand is damaged by association with a voice that they may see as too controversial or even insightful, uh, a provocateur. And in, at this moment in American life, we have so many provocateurs in American media. So again, here's a private actor acting in their self-interest, arguably, but nonetheless having the effect of removing a voice from uh, the public discourse. And in, a, in essence, censoring or muzzling that voice. Um, this is, to me, part of this moment in terms of this discussion, that while government still does things like go after leaks very aggressively and, to my mind, oftentimes crosses the line in terms of suppressing knowledge about government actions that are taking place behind closed door, which is what, of course, journalism should be all about, holding power to account, you then also have a situation where you have now people in the private sector acting to say, here is the line that you can cross and here's the line that you can't cross. And this is very effective. This is tremendously effective. The contrary point of view, of course, is that news is 
so often now entertainment or in a word infotainment or personality driven and that so much of that infotainment or entertainment people make a choice about what they listen to one side or another without regard to the idea that this could be offensive, this could be insightful. Um, and so it comes down to the advertiser, in my opinion, oftentimes not to the government actor. Fascinating. Hugh, you've written so provocatively and widely about the First Amendment. You've said both that there are certain words that should not be spoken, extremely vulgar epithets about political uh, figures. At the same time, you've expressed concern about the polarization of news and the fact that citizens are getting their uh, news sources from red and blue uh, networks. So I'm eager for your answer to the question, what do you think is the greatest threat to free speech in the private sector? Well, first, I want to applaud the Constitution Center for reaching out for the AP students. It's long overdue and vitally necessary that it not just be used, but that it become popular, that it become a thing that people like to do, that students, it's always found uh, an easy spot with me and my kids. I always love talking about the Constitution. It's in Hamilton is the greatest thing to happen mm -hmm. to the study of constitutional law in my lifetime, and <laughs> I'm grateful for that. But I am concerned about this. I think I am on solid ground when I say never before in American history have three private companies held mm -hmm. more power mm -hmm. over politics than at this moment do Google, Twitter, and Facebook. Mm -hmm. Now the three of them have acted benignly in this country mm -hmm. to the extent that I'm capable of following it. I read a lot of Franklin Four, World Without Mine, but they're not acting benignly in other places. Mm -hmm. And indeed they are engineering the instrument of authoritarianism in China for President Xi. There are a million Muslims who are in concentration camps in China who are being educated not to be Muslim with soon the assistance of our high-tech products. Mm -hmm. So those three companies present an entirely set, a new set of problems for first amendment aficionados like the four of us because it's not the government, but there's a good argument that maybe it ought to be. Nadine Hugh is right. The First Amendment says Congress shall make no law. It does not say Facebook shall make no law. And Facebook and Google allow the banning of hate speech that is protected by the First Amendment and have more power over free speech than any king or president or Supreme Court justice. You've just written this amazing book, Hate, and you tell lots of stories of people who have had their First Amendment rights violated. But if we set aside the government, Juan says it's the advertisers, Hugh says it's Fang is what they're called. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's the Fang companies. Yeah. Who would you choose in the private sector as the I, greatest I, threat? I would agree with uh, Hugh, and I would also add as a concern the customers who are putting a lot of pressure on those companies to engage in more censorship of what is called hate speech. Now, I put that term in quotation marks because it is inherently subjective. Facebook recently released its so-called standards, hundreds of criteria for determining whether something is prohibited hate speech or protected. And no two Facebook um, content moderators can, dis can agree with each other. Uh, there are situations where uh, they have to appeal up the chain of command and it ends up being rather arbitrary. Now, whenever you have 
a standard, so-called, that is so vague that it comes down to subjective value judgments of those who are enforcing it. It's handing over discretion to those who have the power. And to me, whether the power is exercised by the commander in chief of the United States or by the head, uh, ultimately the head of one of these companies, doesn't matter. It is depriving me and my fellow citizens of our power to make decisions about what we will see, what we will say, what we will respond to, what we will agree with, and what we will not. And whenever you have this subjective discretionary um, standards, so-called standards, what happens is that the enforcement is arbitrary at best and discriminatory at worst. And when it comes to so-called hate speech, what we've seen is consistent enforcement by Facebook and the others in ways that disproportionately silences minority viewpoints and minority speakers. Those who protest government policy, those who protest police abuse, Black Lives Matter activists, pipeline protesters, a number of civil rights and human rights activists actually use the term race book for Facebook. And a study was done that showed that uh, when white people and African-American people are making the very same complaint, it's the African-American ones whose posts are taken down as hate speech or their accounts are even blocked. Wow. Okay, we've really put the problem squarely on the table. Uh, Nadine just said it's the customers, and that's another word for the citizens. Really, it's the tyranny of the majority. It's a clamor of the people to suppress the speech we hate that is leading advertisers and internet platforms, unconstrained by the First Amendment, to bow to consumer pressure and to suppress unpopular speech. And this is exactly what John Stuart Mill predicted when he said in On Liberty that the greatest threats to free speech would mo come more from the power of censorial public opinion than from the government. And now that public opinion is empowered at warp speed to make decisions on the online platforms without the cooling mechanisms and checks and balances that the Constitution Center sets up to stop mob rule, we are finding the suppression of speech. I'm just putting the problem starkly as mm. a hypothesis. Mm. So one, if that's right, and that's what I'm hearing all of you say, we now have 30 minutes to figure out what we're going to <laughs> do about it. And let's begin with the advertisers. You know, the fan companies are a big problem on their own, but you work for NPR. It's not constrained by the First Amendment. It's technically free to do what it likes. What would you propose to protect journalists, for goodness sake, like yourself, to be able to speak their mind uh, without being fired by private companies? Well, I think there are standards in journalism, Jeffrey, that protect both the journalist and the public because the standards are there in terms of accountability. You can go back, you can say Juan Williams wrote this, Hugh Hewitt said this, Nadine Strawson advocated this, what was said? Uh, and then you can go about making some determination. Uh, the problem here is that there are so many anonymous actors, and even some actors who are intending to mislead you. People who will just put things out there or throw many things out there in order to create a sense of disorientation on part of you as a media consumer. But even worse in my book are people who are provocateurs, who say things who are making money 
by saying outrageous things. In other words, that's how you get clicks. Clicks equal dollars, and they want clicks, and if they propose, propound conspiracy theories, uh, malicious attacks on people, and the like, they know that they can play to a certain audience. You can fragment the American audience. Uh, it's no longer the case as, let's say, when Thomas Paine was writing Common Sense, it's no longer the case that you are sending your signals out to an on, you know, a disaggregate, a, a total American audience. Instead, now it's a disaggregated audience, uh, and you pick a niche, and you play to that niche, and you can make a lot of money, even if you are not telling the truth or not telling the whole story. Um, so, from my mind, when you come into this environment, you as the consumer really have to rely on your own discernment um, and you have to make decisions about what it is you are reading, watching, uh, or listening to. This is a tremendous burden in terms of citizenship, but I think it is required at this time. I have the experience of people regularly approaching me to tell me what I should be thinking and saying uh, in very friendly terms, but one of the retorts that I have for them is, where do you get your information from? So for me, this is what I would call in my wise guy, private mind, you know, brain mapping, because some people will say to me, I read the New York Times, I listen to NPR, I'm a big fan of Huffington Post or Bill Maher. And then someone else will say to me, no, I watch Fox News, I read the Wall Street Journal editorial page, I love the Drudge Report, don't feel abandoned, Hugh, they love you too. And, and, that, and I'll know exactly who I'm talking to or where that perspective is coming from. The danger is the stories that get omitted, they don't necessarily share the same common American diet, if you will, of what is news and what is not news. Uh, in this environment, you can get a situation where someone thinks that Hillary Clinton and someone else is, you know, involved in child uh, slavery, was pizza it, cake. at a pizza, yeah. how, a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C., and actually goes running there with, with a gun. Uh, and at what point do people in the audience say, well, this is nonsense? To the contrary, those sites are growing uh, and becoming more profitable, and it presents a threat then to people who have legitimate journalistic standards, which is where I started my response, uh, and who would say to you as the reader, listener, uh, viewer, that you should exercise some discernment as well. There was a survey that just came out recently that showed that it was of college students specifically, and it showed that a substantial number, I think if not a majority, a big plurality, are distrustful of all news media now because they're so aware of, quote, fake news. And I see, I tend to see the glass half full. I mean, it's ter to demonize the media as the enemy of the people is terrible, and we should resist that wholesale condemnation of one of the pillars of our democracy. But a healthy skepticism is a very good and necessary thing. And I think that, you know, the kind of education that the Constitution Center is doing about free speech is and, 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 and other constitutional rights, especially nurturing the notion of different perspectives and debates, um, will feed into not only 
passive uh, understanding of what those values are, but hopefully active exercise in taking the responsibility. That one of the things that we were talking about just a moment ago on a previous panel was about the gatekeeper function that previously was exercised by big newspaper editors and the like, oftentimes seen as keeping certain views away. But at the same time, it comes back to the idea that you could trust that if you picked up the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, you say, well, they stand by this story, or they will be held to account for errors in this story. There's someone I know who's written this story. I know that there's a real institution here. In the current media environment, that is no longer the case, that you can get people who will say things just to get you to click, watch, view, whatever, mm -hmm. but they don't necessarily identify themselves, and they don't feel that they are under any responsibility to stand behind what was said. They just put it out there as grist for the mill. Hugh, both Nadine and Juan have talked about the responsibility of citizens to educate themselves so they can make informed decisions, and yet that's not the way people, we are behaving. There was a very distressing recent survey that showed that people on Twitter who are exposed to the opposite point of view become more polarized, not less. They dig in their heels, and on Facebook, posts that are based on fake news rather than real news travel faster and further because they're more inflammatory. So given the fact that citizens are behaving in ways that Madison characterized as factional behavior animated by passion rather than reason, by self-interest rather than the public good, what on earth are we going to do about it? Well, I'm going to flip the script and turn that back on you because um, you, you run an institution and the Constitution Center is a very important institution because it's where it's centrally located. It's not identified as partisan. Uh, you're not particularly identified as partisan. We, so, not, we must be nonpartisan. Yeah, and so my question is, what do you think about anonymity? As a steward of a public institution, I think anonymity is going to kill us because we've monetized conflict. And the bots have come, and they have swarmed every online platform. So what as a steward do you think about anonymity in the commenting on of the products produced by the Constitution Center? What a great uh, question. So the founders cared a lot about Anonymity, the Federalist Papers were anonymous. Right. Publius was Madison and the rap star of the moment, Hamilton and John Jay. And we know from the NAACP case by the Supreme Court how important it is to be able to sign anonymous petitions. And yet online, as you suggest, people are more willing to say outrageous inflammatory things anonymously than there are. And that's why Facebook has a real name policy. So I was going to be the moderator and not tell you what I think. If you want, uh, later on I will. But Nadine, what about uh, abandoning uh, the presumption of protection for anonymity online? I would oppose that. And I'm so glad I have the opportunity to say that because I wanted to after uh, you first made that point. I, I think we have to have a balancing in any particular situation uh, because in some cases, anonymity is an essential prerequisite for robust free speech, including speech that is especially important in, in our democratic republic, namely speech about public issues. Some people will feel chilled and will be deterred from expressing their viewpoints. Uh, for, and that it was certainly true for those who were supporting the NAACP in the past. But today, I don't care how controversial or hated I might consider a particular viewpoint to be. Uh, if people have it, I want to know that that view is out there, even if they're not associating themselves with it. In other countries, and in this country as well, whistleblowers, human rights advocates, uh, reasonable 
reasonably fear that government retaliation if they go public with their identity. The Supreme Court has said in any particular situation, we have to balance concerns about transparency and accountability, which certainly further First Amendment concerns, with privacy and confidentiality, which also further First Amendment concerns. So if you're giving a small amount of money to a very controversial political party, there's the balance is struck in favor of anonymity of your disclosure because you would risk um, uh, retaliation for donating to some controversial group and you're not gonna have much power to affect the political process. So I think we have to be, I wanna take a more nuanced view than the seemingly absolute anti-anonymity I've been hearing over here. That, that's a uh, helpful uh, notion that anonymity might be appropriate in some circumstances but not others, but some balancing is necessary. I'm gonna, I have a party trick, which is to be able to recite part of Brandeis's opinion in Whitney. You've heard me do it, Nadine. I'm gonna do it, and I'm gonna ask you whether it's obsolete yeah. uh, because of the speed of deliberation. Yeah. So this is Brandeis and Whitney. I think it's the greatest statement of why we protect free speech in the 20th century, and uh, here we go. Those who won our revolution believed that the final end of the state was to make men free to develop their faculties, and that in its government, the deliberative forces prevailed over the arbitrary. They valued liberty both as an end and as a means. They believed liberty to be the secret of happiness and courage to be the secret of liberty. That's from Pericles' funeral oration. They believed that freedom to think as you will and to speak as you think are means indispensable to the discovery and spread of political truth, that without free speech and assembly, discussion would be futile, that with them, Discussion affords ordinarily adequate protection against the dissemination of noxious doctrine, that the greatest threat to freedom is an inert people, that public discussion is a political duty, and that this shall be a fundamental principle of the American government. So that's Brandon. Amen. Amen. So, so, but the question is, thank you, thank you to Louis Brandeis, um, absolutely. But, but Juan, is, that, is Brandeis's faith, it was all suffused in this enlightenment faith and reason, the freedom of men to develop their faculties of reason rather than passion based on the idea as long as there's time enough for deliberation, the greatest response to evil counsels is good ones. Today there's no time. On the internet things are at warp speed and, with, and as you discovered, uh, things happen so quickly that reason cannot triumph over passion. So was Brandeis too optimistic, and what do we do about the problem of time? Well, the, the difference is, because like Nadine, I would applaud what Brandeis had to say, and your rendition was just wonderful, thank you. Um, but Thanks to Brandeis. The media landscape has shifted in such a way as to shorten the time for deliberation, as you describe it. And also, unfortunately, it has created a situation in which you have people who will employ that technology in terms of bots and the like to distort, intentionally distort the conversation and to undermine the credibility of facts and legitimate actors in that environment. This is a tremendous threat to democracy. This will shift democracy potentially, as we know, influence elections and the like. And that's why, to, to my mind, you want to stand by the principles as articulated by Brandeis or Rosen, and you have, a, a, I think, an obligation as an American uh, to believe in the power of reason and deliberation. 
But I must say that in this current environment, I don't see a lot of that being exercised. To the contrary, people react to the news as it's presented, news or new facts uh, or new theories. And this is what lights up the, the, the screen. This is what lights up modern American media life. I don't think Brandeis lived in this world. I don't think, you know, I think of Thomas Paine, it's still said that common sense is the most widely circulated printed document, you know, per capita in American history. Well, that's a different world now. If he comes out now, even not anonymously, but as Thomas Paine, I think there are people now who would be about sort of ad hominem attacks on Thomas Paine, and suddenly the, the power of common sense is lost. I'm experiencing this at the moment. I just wrote a book. They don't even review the book. There are people who don't even read the book. It's just people from one side or another then attack me personally and undermine people who might want to look at the book. It's just incredible. It's, it's a very dangerous right now, media, social media in particular, but media environment in general. That's a crucial point. The personalization of politics makes the discussion of public reason impossible. And in his other great opinion uh, article about the right to privacy in 1890, Brandeis is worried about a new technology, the Kodak camera and the instant press. And he fears that when gossip attains the dignity of print, it crowds out the space in the public mind for people to discuss matters of public concern. Right. So, so what, how, you know, Hugh mentioned this in an earlier panel, for those of you who weren't here, that we now have technology that would create Hugh Hewitt. Deepfake. Right, and you say, oh, but that's Hugh's voice. I know Hugh's voice from the radio. But it's not. It's, they're just, they've taken it and they put it together, and they can make you act or speak in a way that's not even in keeping with your true beliefs. The, the problem of deepfake is going to overwhelm all of this, and this is why I go back to anonymity. I often quote Thucydides and the Periclean oration that the secret to freedom is the secret to happiness and courage is the secret to freedom. Yeah. Anonymity is the enemy of courage. Anonymity, in fact, uh, is fake courage. And so the, the mediating position between Nadine and mine is that you can give someone anonymity once we can trace you back. So feel free to make your comments on Twitter, but we've got to be able to find you so that if you dox someone, which is another problem that we have presently, doxing is the publication of personal private information on common boards. That's tortious in my view. That's an invasion of privacy. But you can't find who did the doxing absent extraordinary expenditure of resources, which is similarly usually only available to the Federal Bureau of Investigation, because so many anonymity cutouts exist. So many encrypted apps exist. And so the collision of the reality of living in this world is it will drive people out of the public square. They will not choose to come because it is so unpleasant. I'm old. Juan's old, we've been around a while, we don't really care anymore. But I would not <laughs> encourage young people to, to sail without very wide open eyes into the public square. It is a nasty, nasty place to live. I, I, I mean, I, 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 I want to take issue with that, but I also want to 
come back to Brandeis, because I love those words too, Jeff, and I think they really are timeless. And he talks about liberty, including of speech, not only as a means to furthering democracy, uh, but also as an end in itself. And at the very least, the uh, power uh, and the right of self-expression is absolutely vital. And he also talks about an emotional component of speech, that which can have um, instrumental value as well in letting off steam. Now, I think that um, in terms of the danger, the real dangers that were caused by speech then, I always say to my students, we have to have historical humility because we tend to think, oh, this new medium is you know, uniquely dangerous. Never before in human history has there been anything that could do so much harm. And we've heard that claim made about every single new medium, going back at least to papyrus, if not before. Uh, and, and Brandeis, after all, said, you know, looking at an even earlier era, men feared witches and burned women. So there wasn't time for deliberation in the old-fashioned way to, to stop that enormous harm as well. And what I keep coming back to is even with the enormous harms that can be done by speech, is it, what is the lesser of two evils? Do we want to hand over to government the power to determine what is fake news or deep fake news or not? Would we rather enter you know, education, including education through the National Constitution Center? You can do it through the common law. You can do it through nuisance. You can do it through assault. You can do it through the development on a case-by-case -case basis of where injury is done and to trace that injury if you are able to trace the injury. And the technological chasm that is standing in front of us is invisibility of the enemy. And I think beyond a scale, anyone in this room, congratulations for being here, it is much, much bigger than any of us imagine, and the intelligence community will tell us that. Hugh, is this a bipartisan problem? In other words, not just the left suppressing speech on campus or the right uh, uh, suppressing minority speech, but a, a problem of the tyranny of the majority expressing itself online. And if that's true, then why would regulation pass? Because it would be unpopular. It is bipartisan. And David Brooks's um, essay this week, A Rich White Civil War, which I would recommend to all of you, does the new media uh, classification of American to seven political groups, 8% are progressive on the left, 6% uh, are hard right, and then there are traditional variants of both of those are about 14 to 15%. And that's based on a very detailed study. Yeah, huge, you. called um, hiddentribes.us, yeah. and it's 8,000 in-depth interviews, and Brooks is right. It's very troubling because most of political conversation is controlled by the 8 and the 6% who do not represent the, the rest of us, and I would put uh, the, all of us in the rest of us. And if you're in this room engaged in this conversation, you're the rest of us. So how to organize that? I think it's a trust busting function. I think it's an antitrust step first. They're thinking about it at DOJ right now, that Facebook can be four companies. And it's like breaking up Ma Bell. At some point, the only thing we can rely on is an opportunity to compete. And the moat is too big and the wall is too high right now to get in. Because they got there first. Not that they're the greatest geniuses in the world, they got there first. Nadine, last word to you. Okay, so Zechariah Chafee, who was mentioned earlier, one of the early free speech scholars in the 20, 20th century, one of the founders of the ACLU, said, in the long run, we will have just as much freedom of speech as we want. And what he meant by that was we, the people, 
who are the governors under our Constitution, as those opening words salute, we ultimately have power to choose the presidents and the senators who appoint and confirm the justices and the judges who decide what exactly the First Amendment means. Obviously, that interpretation has changed enormously over time. Um, we also exercise our voice as consumers and members of the public and potential advertisers uh, with respect to those who wield power in the private sector. Those who have been complaining about too much hate speech have been heard. Those of us who would complain about not enough free speech have not yet raised our voices enough. So I would say please remember and exercise what I think is your most important right, and that is the right not to remain silent. For defending the rule of public reason, please join me in thanking our panelists. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you. We are honored to have with us the Honorable Noel Francisco, United States Solicitor General, and the Honorable Thomas Hardiman, judge for the United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit for a discussion of the First Amendment in America's system of laws and government. This session will be moderated by Ken Gormley, president of Duquesne University. So jo join me in welcoming them to the stage. Thank you and welcome, good afternoon. We've seen thus far how the words of the Constitution tell us what the First Amendment means in large part, but it's important to see too that the government, specifically the courts, have played a major role in shaping the meaning over the course of American history of the First Amendment, sometimes for better, some would say for worse. And let me just start by saying a word about our distinguished panelists. Solicitor General Noel Francisco is a major figure in United States government. The Solicitor General is the government's number one lawyer in the Supreme Court. It is an incredibly important position. And Judge Tom Hardiman on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit, that's the, there are only 13 courts of appeals in the whole country. And they sit one step below the U.S. Supreme Court deciding some of the most important cases in our system of government. So it is a true honor to have both of you here with us. And I think I've taught constitutional law most of my career and students are often surprised to learn that the first major cases in the Supreme Court dealing with the First Amendment actually found the lack of free speech rights. Uh, Schenck versus United States in 1919. In the years after Schenck was decided and then gradually abandoned in the 50s and 60s by the Supreme Court, um, really the Supreme Court has become increasingly protective of First Amendment rights in our country. Uh, and both of these gentlemen have grappled with these issues, both as uh, lawyers and as judges and as Solicitor General. So I want to talk about some of the cases you've been involved in. So let's start with uh, Solicitor General Francisco. Uh, you're in a very unique position. Lincoln Kaplan 
talked about the Solicitor General as the tenth justice. Others have called the Solicitor General the conscience of government because the Supreme Court tends to listen very carefully to what the Solicitor General says. The <coughs> Solicitor General is sort of protecting the institution of the court at the same time. And as you know, I wrote the biography of Archibald Cox, one of my professors, who was Solicitor General during the Kennedy administration. And he was able to shape some very important Supreme Court decisions. Uh, Bell v. Maryland, Griffin v. Maryland in 1964, two of the famous sit-in cases during the civil rights uh, troubles. And he got the Supreme Court to uphold the sit-in demonstrations and protect their free speech under the narrowest possible grounds until the Civil Rights Act of 64 was passed. So, uh, Mr. General, in your tenure since uh, 2017, you've had some major cases already in the Supreme Court. And one of them was the Masterpiece Cake Shop case decided earlier this year. That was particularly controversial. So tell us about the case and why the Supreme Court ended up agreeing with your position. Sure. And, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people often refer to uh, the Solicitor General as the 10th Justice as you did. I, I can assure you of one thing. I have never heard a Supreme Court Justice refer to the Solicitor General <laughs> as the 10th Justice. But uh, th thanks for having me here. This is a great conference. Uh, and to get to your question about the Masterpiece uh, Cake Shop case, you may recall from reading about it in the news, it involved uh, a Christian baker and a gay couple that wanted the Christian baker to make a custom wedding cake for their wedding celebration. And the Christian baker said, uh, I can bake you a lot of different things but I can't bake you a custom wedding cake because it conflicts with my religious beliefs. And it went all the way up to the Supreme Court to address one, whether it violated his free speech rights to force him to make that cake. And secondly, whether it violated his right to freedom of religion to force him to make that cake. Um, I actually think that this line of cases is one of the more important ones that we're gonna see the federal courts confront uh, in the years to come. Uh, back when I started as a law clerk right after law school, Justice Scalia issued a dissenting opinion in a case called uh, involving the Virginia Military Institute, whether the Constitution prohibited uh, a single-sex military academy run by the state. Uh, the case is not particularly relevant to this, but what Justice Scalia said in his dissent was relevant. What he made clear was that the the Constitution gives government, and particularly state governments, quite a lot of power. But the genius of the Constitution is that it creates a First Amendment that allows people to say and not say what they want to say and what they don't want to say in an effort to convince others that their position is right, other positions are wrong, and to convince others, uh, to, to convince others that the government ought to change its position. And the insight is that just because a particular view is the dominant view today, doesn't necessarily make it the right view. And in a democratic society, we should have the ability to debate with one another over what the right answer is and try to convince our fellow citizens that we're right and they're wrong. Maybe we'll succeed, maybe we won't. The reason why I think cases like Masterpiece Cake Shop are so important is because it really is uh, using the First Amendment to defend the right of dissent. Uh, the dominant view in our culture is very different than it was 15 years ago. But the Christian Baker in Colorado, in my judgment, had a constitutional right not to accept that dominant view. 
and I think it offended First Amendment principles to, to essentially force him to accept that dominant view by participating in a religious ceremony that was uh, deeply contrary to his religious beliefs. And Judge Hardiman, your court has tackled some cases fairly controversial uh, that have gained national attention. One of them involved teenage girls who were suspended from school for wearing little bracelets that said, I heart boobies as part of a breast <laughs> cancer awareness uh, effort. Um, you felt that that speech was not protected in the school, but wh why so? But, and then why did you conclude in a different case that some fairly horrible speech, online speech, by a student in JS versus Snyder, or versus Blue Mountain School District, was protected. This was the new phenomenon of people expressing speech from off campus through computers, and you thought that that was protected. Yeah, that's, I'm glad we can talk about JS because I was in the majority in that case. <laughs> the, the, the first one, I was, I was in dissent. Um, they're both interesting cases. They're both cases that went end uh, bank, which means it went to the full Third Circuit. We have 14 active judges on our court. Uh, most of our cases are heard uh, in three judge panels, but the, um, the I Heart Boobies case initially was heard by a panel of uh, myself, uh, Judge Greenaway, uh, and Judge Greenberg, and uh, then the case was taken up uh, by the full court, and uh, perhaps uh, unusual in that case and interesting is that the uh, three of us that were on the panel were all in dissent eventually. And, and the holding in the case was that the students had a constitutional right to wear this bracelet. And those of us in the dissent wrote that they didn't because in a case called Frazier, the Supreme Court had said that lewd speech is uh, something that can be regulated in public schools. Now, the reason why it would seem incongruous in the other case that I personally said that the student did have a right to publish on her MySpace page all of these really awful comments about her principal and her uh, principal's wife, who also worked in the school district, was because that was not in school. Uh, that was speech that occurred outside school. So one of the things that our courts, uh, the lower federal courts, and perhaps the Supreme Court will increasingly have to wrestle with is this schoolhouse gate <clears throat> problem. Where does the schoolhouse gate begin and where does it end? Uh, because obviously public uh, administrators, teachers, and principals have more latitude uh, to regulate within the schoolhouse gate and not outside the school. And, and some of it has to do with the disruptive effect it has on the school, doesn't it? So well, yeah, if it's disruptive, then you're into the Tinker test, and we're going to hear from Mary Beth Tinker, the plaintiff in that, that seminal case from the Vietnam War era. So if there is substantial risk of material disruption in the school, the, the school can regulate it. But in uh, neither of the two cases you asked me about, were they tinker cases? So they, the question in one was lewdness, and the question in the other was out of school versus in school. But before we leave this topic, because I think it's on the cutting edge, uh, do you foresee circumstances where speech outside the school with students writing you know, some kind of vile, whether it's musical lyrics or attacking the principal in one case in Pennsylvania, uh, threatening to kill or hurt 
uh, teachers or principals that it can cross a line even if they're nowhere near the school if the purpose of it is to disrupt the high school or the grade school? We, we will, I won't speak specifically about that because we will see some cases along those lines. Suffice it to say that there are categories of unprotected speech, true threats, are not protected, fighting words are not protected. So that's sort of your first step in evaluating these cases is to ask yourself, is this in fact protected speech or is it outside the realm of protected speech? Okay, and General Francisco, you uh, mentioned in talking about the Masterpiece case that sometimes an individual's right to not engage in speech is protected by the First Amendment just as strongly uh, the famous case, uh, the Barnett case in the 1940s where young girls who were members of the Jehovah's Witness faith didn't want to say the Pledge of Allegiance, mm -hmm. for instance, and couldn't be compelled to. But you argued the recent Janus case in the Supreme Court in which the court, another controversial <laughs> one, agreed uh, that compelling certain non-union members in the public sector to contribute union dues violated their rights of both speech and association. We're, we're talking mm -hmm. about multiple pieces of the First Amendment. What was your argument there? So basically, as you said, most people think of the First Amendment as it allows you to say whatever you want to say within some limits, but generally you can say what you want to say. But another important component of the First Amendment is it protects your right not to speak. The government can't make you say something that you don't want to say. And one of the seminal cases about that was the Barnett case, which held you couldn't force students to say the uh, Pledge of Allegiance. And another one involved a couple in um, New Hampshire who didn't like New Hampshire's license plate. The motto said, live free or die, because they were pacifists. And so, they, so they put a piece of tape over uh, that portion of the license plate, were prosecuted under state law, and the Supreme Court held that you couldn't force them to speak to disseminate that governmental message. So that's essentially what the Janus case was about. The Janus case involved a state law that applied to government unions, public employee unions. And under the state law, if you were a public employee and you didn't want to be a member of the union, so you didn't join the union, you were still required to pay you know, roughly 85 to 90% of the union dues that you would have to pay if you were a full-blown union member. And the question is, was that essentially compelled speech? Uh, think about, uh, could they force, could, could the government force me to pay money to a, the Democratic Party or somebody else to pay money to the Republican Party? Uh, clearly no, so the question is, is forcing somebody who doesn't want to be a union to pay dues to the union sufficiently similar to that, that it runs afoul of your right not to speak or your right not to pay for somebody else's speech. And it sounds so clear and easy now that you've explained it, but these are all tough cases. And Judge Hardiman, uh, you just referred to the fact that not all speech is protected. Child pornography is not protected. Fighting words, uh, you know, just a, a verbal punch in the nose, as it's been <coughs> called, don't get any First Amendment protection. But these are tough cases. So tell these folks about one that your court handled involving the graphic videos of animal fighting, the Stevens case, because that one was a troublesome one in many ways. It seems to be so distasteful, and yet 
ultimately the Supreme Court agreed that that was protected. How do you draw the lines here and determine what finally goes out of bounds? Yeah, it's a great question, Ken, because sometimes the facts are very, very troubling, as they were in the JS case. I mean, this speech, uh, you know, the, the parent in me, the, the community member in me, wished I didn't have to say that she could say what she did, but she had a First Amendment right to do it. Similarly, in the Stevens case, these were graphic videos of dog fights that were published in Japan, most often. Japan pit bull fights were the names, as I recall, one of the videos. So they're published in Japan, where this is apparently legal, sent to Virginia, where Mr. Stevens was living, and then Mr. Stevens sells them in the United States, puts them into the stream of commerce. He gets prosecuted here in the Western District of Pennsylvania, is found guilty by a jury, and is sentenced to prison. Another case that went to a panel, and the panel said the conviction stands, he violated the law. We took it up and bank again. The full court heard it, and I believe by a nine to three year vote, uh, the vote wasn't close. We held that Mr. Stevens' uh, First Amendment rights were violated because the statute under which he was prosecuted was uh, unconstitutionally overbroad. And that's something that's always an issue in First Amendment uh, jurisprudence is, is the incursion or the restriction on speech narrowly tailored so as not to capture more speech than is necessary to protect the public. And the Supreme Court affirmed us um, with only one dissent. An interesting side note, uh, the, dissent, uh, the dissenter showed up at our judicial conference, Justice Samuel Alito, who is our circuit justice, and he began his speech about the Supreme Court by citing the Stevens case and lamenting that, indeed, even sometimes the Supreme Court gets it wrong. <laughs> so, uh, and and um, let me ask both of you, we're, we're looking at these nice displays of the pieces of the 45 words of the First Amendment, and it says Congress shall make no law uh, respecting all these things or of the press. Okay, so it gets special mention in the Constitution. But who in God's name constitutes the press today? We have, you know, smartphones, computers, bloggers, tweets, podcasts. So can everyone go to the White House press conference and just have a badge that says blogger on it and you get to go in? Who constitutes the press now? You know, uh, I, I think it's, it's virtually impossible to say who constitutes the press. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I don't know that uh, I expect to see courts try to answer that question. The reason why the White House can restrict the number of people who come into the White House to the White House press conference is because even amongst the press, they get to pick and choose who comes. There are just not enough seats for everybody else. Uh, to me, the important question in this era is what constitutes speech? Because we now have such a multiplicity of avenues by which individuals can speak. And we now have platforms where any individual can have a voice that's nearly as loud as a traditional newspaper is. And so in that era, are we going to treat some kinds of speakers differently than others? You know, I frankly suspect the answer is no. We're, we have a lot more speech today, but we, that I think is just gonna mean we have a lot more things that are protected by the First Amendment. Judge Hardiman? Uh, yeah, it's a tough question, and I've, I've enjoyed debating this with you over the years when you were professor and then dean and now president. It's, uh, it's hard. Uh, you know, we have these categorical 
baskets that require us to interpret things. What is an establishment of religion? What is speech? What is the press? Uh, I tend to agree with the general that, that most of the action will be in, in not defining who are the press, but in defining what are the contours of protected speech. Maybe it's just because the horse is out of the barn, I don't know. Okay, and uh, interestingly, in the criminal procedure area, they've started to dip their toe into these areas of new technology, like the Jones case dealing with GPS tracking and whether you need a warrant to do that, the Carpenter case dealing with cell phone towers. Um, do those tell cases in the criminal sphere tell us anything about where the court is going to go in talking about new technology and the First Amendment? You know, I, I actually think the answer to that question is no, and that you may well see the court go in opposite directions in those two areas. So in the Fourth Amendment type cases, the Supreme Court just heard a case uh, last term called Carpenter. And it had to do with whether the government needed a warrant if they went to your cell phone provider, Verizon, and had them give you the records that showed everywhere that you had carried your cell phone to over you know, a two, three month period. And if you looked at ordinary old Supreme Court doctrine, what it said was that if you were going to a third party, like a telephone company, and asking for those third party records from the telephone company, you didn't need a warrant because the person who was asserting the Fourth Amendment rights didn't have any right to prevent you, to prevent that third party from giving that information to the government. Now that case gets up to the Supreme Court and if you just look at black letter law, it looks like a pretty easy case. But the big difference is that with modern technology, that means that the government can quite literally pinpoint your every movement over a 30, 40, 50 day period. And that is quite a big intrusion into uh, privacy that you didn't have if you were simply going to the telephone company to find where you made landline telephone calls to. And so what the Supreme Court essentially said was, you know what, we're, we're not gonna apply that old doctrine to this new technology because it just is too big of an intrusion on individual privacy. I actually think in the First Amendment context, you're gonna see the opposite. You're gonna see the Supreme Court essentially applying existing doctrine to new technologies uh, to make sure that new forms of speech are protected. Because I do think that at the end of the day, uh, the First Amendment is meant to, no matter you know, how often or how loudly you speak, it's meant to protect that right to speak and that right to criticize the government. And they're gonna be very leery of uh, government's attempt to restrict uh, that speech just because it, it can find its way to the world in many different ways. Judge Hardiman, does it provide clues for us? Yeah, I, I'm, I think I agree with the general, I, I'm loath to disagree with the 10th justice, but I, <laughs> I, I think, I'm sure he's, he's right, but I'm not quite as confident in this dichotomy between the fourth and the first amendment. Uh, but some evidence to support your point, I think Brown v. Entertainment Merchants comes to mind. A fascinating decision about California's attempt to regulate violent video games. Do violent video games cause actual violence? What does the social science say on that? Justice Scalia, in that case, uh, likened the violent video games to the grim fairy tales, saying this is essentially different in degree, not different in kind. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious and, and really eager to see whether at some point the Supreme Court tells us 
that some forms of electronic communication aren't just different in degree, but perhaps could be different in kind. That might be a bridge too far for them to go. I don't know, but it'll be interesting to see. So one of the speakers earlier today, or maybe it was yesterday, predicted that the new Supreme Court, uh, with Justice Kavanaugh on it now, would start retrenching. We talked about how the, the trajectory since the 50s and 60s has been to broaden, strengthen First Amendment <coughs> rights. Uh, but there was at least one panelist predicting that that would change uh, with the new Supreme Court. So I'd ask each of you what you see with the court going forward in terms of protection of First Amendment rights. And this is where I'd like to, especially since we have so many students here, I'd like you to tackle, you can feel free to talk about specific justices, but I'd like you to tackle the underlying assumption a lot of times that justices are going to vote their party, in essence, that we have five R's and four D's, and somehow that is going to predetermine the outcome. So I, I think it's very important to talk about that issue and thinking about where we're going with the First Amendment. Well, uh, just to go back to the cases we talked about, uh, you remember the, uh, the boobies bracelet case, that was a nine to five vote, and uh, there was quite a difference between judges on both sides of that nine to five, uh, appointed by Republican and Democrat presidents over decades, even more starkly in the JSV Blue Mountain School District, the, uh, the vile off-campus speech by the middle schooler, that vote was eight to six, and in the majority were five Third Circuit judges appointed by Democrat presidents, uh, three of us, including myself, appointed by Republican presidents, and in the dissent, six judges, three appointed by Democratic presidents, and three appointed by Republican presidents. So. Uh, speaking only for the circuit courts and for the district courts, because I, I don't know about the high court, I can tell you that the notion that what we do every day is politics by other means is completely false. It's not even close. It's all about the facts and the law and applying them and doing so on our court in a collegial manner because you're always doing it with two others or sometimes 13 others. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I don't think you're going to see a major shift on the Supreme Court with uh, uh, Justice Kavanaugh coming in to replace Justice Kennedy for two reasons. First, um, Justice Kennedy was one of the most robust defenders of free speech principles right. on the court. And I think that Kavanaugh is going to be equally robust in defending free speech principles. I don't think there's a lot of daylight uh, between the two of them on that issue. But secondly, I think it's because on a lot of free speech issues, there's not a daylight, a lot of daylight between most of the justices. I think free speech, along with a couple of other areas, is one of those areas that tends to unite the justices across ideological lines. So that if you don't, maybe you don't always see lopsided 8-1 opinions or 9-0 opinions, but you often see, even in 5-4-6-3 opinions, Alliance, uh, unexpected alliances, some conservative justices joining with some liberal justices in both the majority and the dissent. So I don't think generally it's an area that divides them on ideological lines, and in many cases it brings large majorities and Let me together. ask you about that, because that's really important. I remember interviewing Chief Justice Berger years ago, 
And he told me he felt the most significant opinion he ever wrote was Miller v. California, having to do with you know the obscenity, the new obscenity test. Uh, but why is it, General Francisco, that you do see this? Because part of our conference is to talk about where we find common ground as a country mm -hmm. at a time when it seems to be really difficult to identify that. Why is it? that the justices on the court who are the most solidly conservative or Republican, most solidly Democrat or liberal, end up agreeing on this? I think it's because over time, and it hasn't been an easy path and a straight path for the Supreme Court, but over time, both sides across the spectrum have been in dissent and not been in dissent, and they've realized that it is very important to one, protect the ability of the minority to speak, no matter how odious we may think their speech is, no matter how much we disagree with it, we need to protect their right to speech. And two, it's only when you protect somebody's right to speech, even to engage in the most uncivil speech, that you have the hope for uh, re re resuscitating the idea of civil debate in this country. Because the worst thing you can do if you want to promote a civil debate is to suppress the, the voices of dissent. That is going to foster incivility far more than a free and open debate where we confront, uh, in a room like this, uh, people who have views that very much differ with our own. Yeah, uh, as you were talking, it made me remember, I think the first program I worked on when I came to Duquesne in 1994, uh, we had Gerald Gunther here, one of the great constitutional and First Amendment <clears throat> scholars. And he came to my class and people were talking about, at that time, hate speech in colleges because there had been a bunch of uh, universities, including his own Stanford University, that had tried to suppress speech that they determined to be hateful. And he shocked the class and me because they thought he'd be on their side and saying this stuff has no place in a university or a college. And he said, he grew up in Nazi Germany as a young boy, as a Jewish young boy in Nazi Germany where he was in the schoolyard and people would spit at him and call him, I believe it was Judenso or something, but it meant Jewish pig. And despite that, when he came to the United States, he understood more importantly why it was that this had to be protected. And so he was a firm believer that you have to protect that speech and overpower it with more and better speech. And I think what you're saying is the Supreme Court, and these are all the top-notch jurists in our country, no matter which president appointed them, understand that basic principle. Uh, so let's wrap up by talking about uh, what you think the Supreme Court has contributed to the evolution of the First Amendment in our country. So you're the top lawyer for the US government in the Supreme Court. You're, Judge Hardiman, sitting on one of the highest courts of the land. What has the Supreme Court done to help move forward in a positive way the evolution of the First Amendment in our country? 
So uh, I'm going to do what I occasionally do in, in oral arguments, uh, often not with great success, but I'm going to resist the hypothetical a little bit. <laughs> because I actually don't think it's the Supreme Court that has done so much to contribute to free speech in our society, but the First Amendment. Uh, it's easy to take for granted now the principle underlying the First Amendment at its core that you have a right to criticize the government that has power over you. But at the time, that was a very revolutionary principle. At the time, you could be hanged, jailed for criticizing the government. So it was our founders that had the genius to create this right that allowed us to be harshly critical of our government and to have that speech be protected. What I think the Supreme Court has done is it has protected and nurtured that right over the years. But to me, it's the innovation of the founders uh, that is so revolutionary. I, I agree completely. I think it's hardwired in, in our, uh, the American mind. Uh, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, freedom of speech. It's, these are our first freedoms. Uh, you know, these are things that we all cherish. Uh, every non-lawyer cherishes these freedoms. So I, I agree that it's, uh, the court has certainly played a role. The court has, has done a lot from time to time to check excesses. Ironically, the court didn't have to check the excesses of the Sedition Act back in 1798 and 1800 because when Jefferson won and uh, the Republicans, Democrat Republicans took over from the Federalists, they just changed the law. Uh, sort of in the same way uh, right. the Independent Council law was, was scuttled after the episode that you wrote about, Ken. Well, let, let me just say that uh, when I had the privilege of serving as dean of Duquesne Law School, one of the things I was most proud of was our long tradition of producing young men and women who went on into public service, government service, because in my view, that's one of the greatest gifts you can give society with the talents that you have, and, uh, including as a lawyer. So I would like to thank these two gentlemen for their public service at the very highest levels and for a wonderful panel. Thank you very much. The Honorable Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court, was unable to be with us here today, but she graciously offered to videotape an important reflection dealing with the First Amendment in American history. In my growing up years, in the dark days of World War II, I was heartened by a then popular song, Ballad for America, music by Earl Robinson, lyrics by John Latouche. What is America to me? The velvet voice of Paul Robeson asked. The response in part, the right to speak my mind out, that's America to me. That right is the first guaranteed by our Bill of Rights. The right to think, speak, and write as we believe without fear that big brother government will retaliate against us because we don't tow the party line. 
There have been times when our officials have strayed from that understanding. In the heyday of Senator Joe McCarthy in the 1950s, for example, a red scare was abroad in the land. Yet in that trying time, lawyers appeared on behalf of people hauled before the House Un-American Activities Committee and Senate Investigating Committees. Those lawyers reminded our legislators that the First Amendment safeguards freedom of expression as essential to democratic government, and ultimately the aberration passed. May we not fail to learn the lessons of past missteps. May we treasure the right to speak our minds out, yet remain respectful of the rights of others to do the same. This conversation was presented by Duquesne University and the Pittsburgh Foundation in partnership with the National Constitution Center. Tune in to hear part two of 1A USA on May 21st. This episode was edited by Jackie McDermott and Greg Sheckler and produced by me, Tanea Tauber, and Jackie McDermott. If you enjoyed this constitutional conversation, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show and tell your friends about it. And check out our companion podcast, We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate that's available wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Tauber.